Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Alright, let's get get on with Genesis. Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. We finally passed another threshold of another chapter. We finished up chapter 16 the last time that we were together. But before we read into chapter 17, I would like if somebody would mind reading the last verse of chapter 16, because... Uh, Well, we need the information there to kind of springboard off of Somebody mind reading chapter 16, verse 16. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Excellent. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. And then we move into chapter 17, verse 1. Somebody write and read that one. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. And so here we have the last verse of chapter 16. He's how old? In, in chapter 16? Oh, 86. There you go. 86 years old at the end of chapter 16. He's how old now in the start of chapter 17? 99. How many years have gone by? It looks like about 13 years. All right. So the last thing we saw, what was the last major event that happened at the end of chapter 16? Ishmael was born, right? So how old is Ishmael right about now? Yeah, he's a teenager. (laughs) Do you suppose those were some smooth years over there with Sarai and Hagar? How do you suppose that's been going, the last glimpse that we saw of them over there? (laughs) 13 years of tension that we got to skip out on. A lot of drama is probably what we're missing out on over there in those 13 years that that we're not having to read about. So now Abram is 99 years old. How long have they been in the land? How old was he when they came into the land? Anybody remember that? It's over in chapter 12, the start of chapter 12. 75. 75, verse 4, 75 years old. So he was 75 years old when they left Ur of the Chaldees, and now he's 99. So we're looking at about 24 years, 24 years that they've been in the land, and 24 years since God first appeared to him that we have record of over there in chapter 12. What constituted the promises that God made to him back there in chapter 12? What did he say to him back then? What were some of the things he said? If somebody wants to read, you can read verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. So over there in chapter 12, that was 24 years before, God had promised back then, I will make you a great nation. And then as time has gone by in those 24 years, that wasn't the last time that God appeared to him. There, there have been other times in chapter 15, and one of the more significant times, there's a promise of not just children, but then in that is included a promise of land. So a promise of children and a promise of land, and now we're up to chapter 17, and we haven't seen the fulfillment of these yet. And you might say, well, wait a minute, sure we have. Ishmael's been born, so there's got to be a fulfillment there. That's a child. That's not the child promise. 
Paul would say that's that's a different child, <laughs> right? The child of promise is Isaac, who hasn't come along yet, all right? So we're still looking forward to the fulfillment of the promises that God has given to Abram, and it's been 24 years. I don't know if you've ever had somebody pray over your life and, and speak a word to you in your life about something still yet future, that, you know, maybe they spoke something specific. And I've been in congregations where this has happened, where they actually take you and they say, God is going to do this with you. God's got this plan for you. And this is something you can expect. Could you imagine waiting 24 years before that comes about? Or maybe God's got some different idea of timing than we do. God's got a different way of reckoning time. His ways are not our ways. They're so much higher than our ways. They're so much higher than our ways, they're hard to figure out. So here we have 24 years since they've been in the land, 13 years since Ishmael's been born, and here we have the introduction or the opening statements of Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, this is yod heh vav heh or Yahweh, or Jehovah, as you would find in different circles, the Lord appeared, and this word for appeared right here is the same word that's used in chapter 12, verse 7, when the Lord appeared to Abram the first time, initially. It's the same word that's used here in this chapter, in this verse. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Almighty God or God almighty, depending on the translation that you're reading. Uh, it says almighty God in the King James and the New King James. It says God almighty in other ones like the New International Version, the New Living Translation, ESV and the NASB. All right. Almighty God, the Hebrew behind that is El Shaddai. El Shaddai, this is the first time that we have the appearance of that name for God, El Shaddai. I almost can't say that without thinking of the old Amy Grant song. I don't know if you guys, you know, if you remember that. But anyway, uh, it's a Hebrew name, El Shaddai. This is the first time we have the appearance of that name in the Bible. And this is actually, by tradition, this is the name that God is most often known by, by the patriarchs. All right, 48 times in the Old Testament. You end up finding it most of the time in Job. It appears in Genesis six times. And of the six times that it appears in Genesis, five of those six times it's associated with uh, children, the promise of children, and it's associated three times with blessings, blessings and children. So I don't know if you're a person or somebody that wants children or you're praying for children or you can't have children or something. Yeah, okay, El Shaddai is your God, all right? <laughs> it comes with, uh, comes with the idea of, of blessings and children, all right? So Almighty God or God Almighty. Stuart Briscoe says this, he says, I am almighty God, translates the Hebrew El Shaddai. Scholars have experienced difficulty identifying the exact meaning of the name, but are generally agreed that it refers to God's all-sufficient power and might, particularly in contrast to man's weakness and vulnerability. Okay, And then what does almighty God say to Abram here in this verse? Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. So God is giving Abram instructions, commands, if you will. The command, walk before me and be blameless. This isn't the first time that God has given commands to Abram. We've seen elsewhere God gave Abram the command to leave, or of the Chaldees. That was over in chapter 12, verse 1. In chapter 13, he was commanded by God to lift up your eyes and look to the heavens, right, and count the stars. Remember that. There was also in chapter 15, verse 1, where he appeared to Abram over there, it was fear not. There was a command to fear not. And then look heavenward, again in chapter 15, verse 5. And then in 15, verse 9, it was bring me, if you remember, bring me the animals and the specified animals uh, for the initiation of the covenant there. So God has given commands to Abram so far. But there's a difference between those commands we've seen so far and this command here. And the difference is this. When God gave those commands earlier, they could be satisfied in a single instance. Right? When he says, leave Ur of the Chaldees, once he leaves, Abram's obeyed. 
when he says, look up to the sky, lift up your eyes, look up, all right, satisfied, check it off the list. Fear not. Okay, if you don't fear, then you've satisfied that requirement. To look heavenward, satisfied in one instance, looking heavenward, or bring me the animals. He brings them the animals, satisfied. But here, this one's different. This one is walk before me and be blameless. In fact, the word, the verb form that's used here carries with it the idea of a continual action. This instruction given by God to Abram is to be continual. It's not satisfied in a particular instance. It's to be the course of conduct from this point forward. So when he says to Abram, walk before me and be blameless, he's saying from this time forward, keep this up. Walk before me. What would walk before me be? It would be walk in front of me or walk where I can see you or do what you're doing, recognizing that you're doing it in front of me. Okay? If I, uh, if I have my kids, after dinner, my kids have this routine where they're responsible for cleaning up the table, cleaning the dishes, cleaning the counter, putting everything away, getting the dishes in the dishwasher, getting everything going. And it, sometimes uh, the performance of that task might be a little lacking. And I might find that on the counter there are crumbs that haven't been wiped off. And maybe I'll have to call back one of my kids and say, did you clean the counter? Yes, I cleaned the counter. Okay, you know what? You're gonna Do it again. And this time do it before me. Do it in front of my eyes. Abram is being reminded that what he does is before God. Walk before me. It's as if saying, walk recognizing you're doing what you're doing in front of my eyes. Be aware of how you're engaged in, in living. Because you're doing this before me. You're doing this in front of my eyes. Okay? So walk before me. And the other one there is be blameless. Be blameless. Okay, we've seen this word blameless before. It has actually come up when we talked about Noah. When we looked at Noah, Noah was described as tamim, the same word that's used here to describe what Abram is to be. So Noah already was what Abram is encouraged to be. Okay, Noah was blameless, but Abram needs to have that as his standard to be blameless on a continual basis. You might think, wow, that is a, that's a really high standard. Well, yeah, it is. To be blameless, this, I mean, this, word, this same word is also used of the sacrifice you would bring to God. It's to be blemish-free. It's to be, as far as it can be, perfect. In describing a sacrifice that you would bring to God, when you use the word tamim for blameless, it's describing the physical characteristics of that sacrifice. The physical characteristics of that sacrifice should be blemish-free or blameless. But in this instance where we're talking about using it for Abram, when God is calling Abram to be tamim, he's not calling for him to be physically blameless in the sense that, oh, he can't have any moles, you know, or he can't have any you know, whiskers coming out of his ears. I don't know. You know, it's not talking about physical characteristics. It's talking about spiritually, right? He's to be purely devoted to God. Now we might say, okay, well, that's a high standard. I sure am glad that that's a standard God has for Abram and he doesn't have for us, right? And we might think, whew, I'm glad there are heroes in the Bible that we can use to just look at their lives and say, good for them. I'm glad he has a lower standard for me. Uh, no. <laughs> no, he doesn't. I'm just going to shorten down this list. I'm just going to give you a few of these. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus talking, he says, therefore you shall be perfect 
just as your father in heaven is perfect. And you go, well, I think there might be a different translation for that. I, I don't like that translation. Okay, let me, let me pick another, another verse. Ephesians 1.4, Paul says, regarding God, he, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame. What is without blame? It's blameless. Without blame before him in love. Ephesians 5.27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Philippians 2.15, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That doesn't describe my generation, does it? A crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. 2 Peter 3.14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. God doesn't lower his standards. The standard that he has for Abram is the standard he would extend to us, that we should walk before him and be blameless. Walking before him, recognizing everything we do is in his sight. Everything we do is under his observation. Recognizing everything we do, he sees. And we should live accordingly in a way that won't bring shame upon him or upon us. Being blameless, living to the best of our abilities, and I would say we are imperfect and we are going to fail, and John tells us in First John that, you know what, if you claim you're going to be able to get through this without falling, then you're lying to yourselves. But having that as our standard, to be blameless. Genesis 17, 2. God speaking still. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. I will make my covenant between me and you. This is not the first time we've seen the word. It's appeared one other time. It was Genesis chapter 15. You remember the story over there, the, the, the establishing of the covenant and bringing the animals, cutting the animals up. All right, cutting a covenant. So we had it once before in Genesis chapter 15, but here in chapter 17, it's 13 times. This word appears 13 times. A covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a contract or an agreement. A covenant is a promise. If you think of, um, Dave just bought a house, loan documents. Loan documents, that's a covenant. All right. If you think of a lease agreement, that's a covenant. If you think of a last will and testament, that's a covenant. All right. In fact, Old Testament, New Testament, the word testament, it's another word for covenant. Old covenant, new covenant, covenant and testament. These are just examples of covenants. That's what a covenant is. Covenant's a big deal in this chapter. It appears, like I said, 13 times. So those are all examples of covenant there. Uh, going on to the third verse then. Somebody mind reading verse 3? Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked to him, saying... Good deal. <laughs> You're thinking, wait a minute, there's more to go. All right. Thank you for stopping. What are you doing? All right. <laughs> so in verse 3, what, what's Abram's response? Face down. Yeah, face down. What was his response last time in chapter 15? Do you remember what happened? If, you, if you're not sure, you could turn over to chapter 15. It says... After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, I be your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Did Abram go face down there? Mm-hmm. No, what did he do? What does verse 2 say? O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Mm-hmm. Since I don't have a son, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. Excellent. Thank you, Jennifer. I like that translation, especially <laughs> for this point right here. He's complaining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right? God appears to him in chapter 15. Hello, Abram, don't be afraid. He's like, he starts his complaining part. Whereas here in chapter 17, 13 years later, he's not complaining. He's face down. Mm -hmm. 
it seems that we're seeing a little bit of a maturing going on in Abram's life, a spiritual maturing going on in Abram's life. You know, God tolerates us when we're younger in the faith with our complaints, right? Recognizing that there should be a maturing that's taking place in our life, right? There should be a maturing that takes place. There should be a point where we go from the complaining follower to the face-down, humble follower of God. We shouldn't be stuck in the complaining place, all right? And so God puts up with Abram there in chapter 15 in his complaint. And here in chapter 17, face down, seems to have matured a little bit and should be an example for us too. We should be maturing as well. Hopefully before 99. Oh, that's right. Hopefully before the age of 99. I like that. Chapter 17, verse 4. Somebody might read that one. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. The word that's used there, we have this word here, nations. What have I circled there? When I wrote that word on the board, what did I just circle? The S. There's an S on the end. It's plural, right? That means more than one. You understand that when we read the Bible, the Bible is very Israel-centric. The Bible is very... Jewish centric we would expect to read here that I have made you a father of nation singular right but we're talking about the creator of heaven and earth the creator of the universe he has a plan that he's unfolding for us here on this earth that's a very Jewish very Israel centric plan but can't be contained in just one nation God's a big God And what he's doing spans outside the borders of a nation singular. What he's doing spreads across nations, not just nation. You don't need to look any further than the most often quoted verse of the New Testament. What would that be? God so loved the world. For God so loved the world, right? It wasn't God so loved the nation. It wasn't even God so loved, you know, nations, plural. It's that God loved the world. What God is doing, he's intending to do for all humankind. He's bringing it about using a single nation, a single people as a focal point. But his plan is much bigger than can be contained in nations singular. His plan involves nations plural. All right? So I've made you, he's talking to Abram here, I've made you a father of many nations. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. The word there is goy in Hebrew. All right? And goy has become to be a word that involves Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. I'm not a Jew. But I get to experience the benefits of being what Paul would say grafted in as a wild olive branch into a cultivated olive tree. I shouldn't be able to be in there except for God's grace extending it to a broader category than just one little group. God's doing something, and it's on a big scale. Nations and Goy, this is, this is me. I get, to be a, I get to be a participant in this because of this, because there's an S on the end. If there wasn't an S on the end, I wouldn't be included in this. It would be just me and Dave. <laughs> That's right. It would be just you and Dave. <laughs> Oh, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Now, we do see a literal fulfillment as Genesis unfolds. We do find that there are other nations that come genetically from him, biologically from him, 
we'll find out later in chapter 25, he ends up, after Sarai dies, he ends up having Keter as a wife, and, and there are children through that relationship. Uh, you have Ishmael and children that come from that, and then you have Esau and children that come from that, and respectively, they, they start nations of their own. So there is a literal fulfillment in that localized setting of Genesis, but there's also a spiritual fulfillment, and that's, the, that's what I'm alluding to here on the board, that includes you and I. It's an invitation that's extended to anyone, irrespective of your race. It's available to anyone. So it's not that God has one particular nation, and that's all he cares about, as if it's the nation of Israel, or it's the nation of the United States, or Great Britain, or Mexico, or the Ukraine. All right? God has something that encompasses all of those and more. God has something going on where the invitation is extended and it, it crosses boundaries of nations. It crosses boundaries of race. It crosses boundaries of social status. It's an invitation that's universal, if I can use that word. All right. Chapter 17, verse 5. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. So I have written on the board there the meanings of the names Abram and Abraham. Abram, uh, as you can see on the board that I've written up here, it means exalted father, and then Abraham can have the meaning of father of a multitude or father of multitudes or father of a multitude of nations, okay? But maybe you're thinking, wait, I'm a little confused at how this is supposed to work because uh, genetically, biologically, I mean, we're talking about Abraham, and then eventually we're going to see Isaac, and then we're going to see Jacob, and then Jacob's got his 12 sons, and specifically through the son of Judah, we're going to see the arrival of Christ. But still, that's a very limited scope, Still, that's a very narrow family tree following down that line right there. How, do I, how am I included in this? It's because it's, it's a relationship that we have with Abraham, as he now gets to be called. It's a relationship we get to have with Abraham through faith. He becomes the father of us all through faith rather than genes or genetics, rather than biologically. We're related to him spiritually through faith. Let's go to Romans. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 17. Romans chapter 4, verse 17 says this. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Oh, cool. That's the same verse we just read. Paul is talking in Romans chapter 4, and he's quoting from Genesis chapter 17, verse 5. But what's the broader context there? Look at verse 16, and then the start of verse 17. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise what promise the promise is the promised abram from god that the promise might be sure to all the seed not only to those who are of the law but also to those who are of the faith of abraham who is the father of us all as it is written i have made you a father of many nations abraham then becomes our father father abraham had many sons you remember that old song? Many sons had fathers. There you go. Good. You got it. Exactly right. It's not speaking genetically. It's not speaking biologically. It's not that Father Abraham had a lot of kids genetically. It's that Father Abraham had a lot of kids spiritually. And how does that song eventually end up going? I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, left arm. You remember that song? I love that song. I love it now more that I understand it. When I was involved in children's ministries, singing that song, leading it in front of kids, I didn't get it. I was singing it with gusto, maybe. But I understand it now because of Genesis chapter 17. When you read Genesis chapter 17, you find out 
I really am one of them. <laughs> and so are you. If you're in Christ, if you're in the faith, if you're in the faith, this is your dad. This is your ancestry. This is your family line. I got, I, I, I got an article here. I got to read you. This is an article. In 2008, a California man named Tony Marone bought a box of documents at a neighborhood garage sale for five bucks. When he got home, Marone examined his take and noticed that one of the documents was a 1917 stock certificate for 1,625 shares of the Palmer Union Oil Company. With a little investigating, Marone discovered that Palmer Union Oil merged with a company, and that company then merged again with Coke. And according to the lawsuit, his twice-merged shares would entitle him to 1.8 million shares worth an estimated $130 million based on today's closing price of $72.02. That many shares would make Mr. Marone's heirs the largest non-institutional shareholders of Coca-Cola and one of the richest garage sale hunters in history. <laughs> I love that article. Because you know what he found? He found he's an heir to a fortune he maybe didn't even realize. Why am I bringing this up? Because when you start to see how this is all linked together, you find out you are an heir to a fortune you never realized. You're connected to Father Abraham through Christ. If you're in Christ, and if you're in the faith, you're connected to Abraham. Genesis chapter 17, and this becomes your family history just as much as anybody else's. This becomes a story about where your roots are. This becomes about how I got here, how I'm en enabled to be able to come in, how I get to be adopted into the family. This becomes not just some ancient document relegated to history. This becomes shares to a fortune. And I'm not, I'm not trying to use that in a, a monetary sense. I'm trying to use it in a spiritual sense. This is gold here, spiritual gold here, and you're, you're connected to it. You find out you're holding in your hands something far greater than treasures. Rubies of pearls. All right, this is much more than that. All right, I'm getting a little excited. Let's see if I can bring it back down. <laughs> All right, where are we at? Oh, boy, we're running out of time. Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. We went back to Genesis then. 17, 6. Somebody mind reading that one? I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. This word fruitful is the same word that's used when God told Adam in the garden. Regarding Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply it's the same word that he used when he, to when he talked to Noah after the flood. Be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. This fruitfulness that was used in conjunction with Adam and that's used in conjunction with Noah is now used here with Abraham. It's fruitfulness that was in the creating of Adam, in the delivering of Noah, and now it's empowered in Abraham, being fruitful there. And I will make nations of you. Not every verse, it seems, is, it has this word nations in it. It's just reminder after reminder. This is us. This is us. All right, moving on from there. T. Desmond Alexander says, Fruitfulness is associated with human beings exercising dominion over the earth on God's behalf. God's covenant with Abraham anticipates the reestablishment of the creation mandate. Through this covenant, the negative effects of the fall will ultimately be reversed. Could that be possible? Could this covenant that's being made by God, with God and Abraham now, could it possibly still be in effect today? I don't know. I guess we'll have to find out. Somebody might read verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Wait, wait, wait. What kind of covenant? Everlasting. Everlasting? Some of your translations might have eternal. This is a covenant God has not rescinded. 
this promise that God is making and reiterating, because he made he, he started it in Genesis chapter 12. We saw it again in chapter 13. We saw it again in chapter 15. We're seeing it again in chapter 17. Every time we're seeing it, there's more detail as to what this covenant is. All right, This covenant, with all the details we have of Genesis chapter 17, was never rescinded. God says, I'm making this everlasting. This is an everlasting covenant. He's going to be the father of many nations. There's going to be a promise of land. But there's going to be something else that's new here. All right, the, One of the new aspects of it is walking before me and, and being blameless. And then the other new aspect here is that this covenant is everlasting. That the covenant is everlasting. By the way, this word everlasting covenant here, or, or the phrase everlasting or eternal and being associated with a covenant, shows up three times in this discussion, in this chapter here. How about Galatians? Turn to Galatians 3.16. Galatians 3.16. We're going to talk a second here about descendants. Our English translation provides the translation there, descendants. Yours might have offspring. All right. Descendants is a plural word. But the Hebrew word behind it may or may not be translated as plural. It can be translated as a singular or as a plural. Paul picks up on this, or Paul takes this, and he makes a point out of it in writing Galatians. And he says something in Galatians chapter 3 that's kind of fun to look at. And it's actually a little eye-opening if you haven't seen this material before. Somebody mind reading Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. So Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3, that's pointing to Christ. He's saying that Genesis chapter 17 verse 7, when it says descendants, the word there is Zerah. All right, like I said, it can be translated singular or plural, and Paul uses it and crafts it in such a way that he says it's singular. And if it's singular, it's Christ. So he's saying the descendants, Christ. There's another place, though, where he'll actually take the word and he'll say it's plural, it's all of us. How can it be both? How can it be Christ, singular, and how can it be all of us, both? Go to Galatians 3.29. Somebody mind reading that? And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and now all the promises God gave to him belong to you. Excellent. Thank you, Jennifer. So what you see here is, now he's saying we're the seed, plural. He's saying it's a plural, and it's all of us. How can that be possible? He's saying that the singular form, Christ. And if we're in Christ, we're heirs, we're seed, plural. That it can apply first to Christ, and then if we're in Christ, it applies to us. All right. Go back then to Genesis 17.8. We're going to wrap it up pretty soon here. Somebody mind reading this. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan has an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So here we have the word everlasting showing up again. But it's describing something different than the previous verse. What was the everlasting thing in the previous verse? The covenant. What's the everlasting thing in this verse? Possession. Yeah, the it's land. the land promise. Yep. The land promise. Okay, so little soapbox thing here. little sidetrack here. Side All right. When you hear discussions about who does the land belong to and the fight over the land of Israel, let's partition up, let's cut it up, and let's distribute it to everybody who raises their hand thinks they have a claim to it. Mm-hmm. If you ask God who the land belongs to, it doesn't just get divided up and given to anybody. The land was eternally promised to Abraham's descendants. And in a biological, genetic sense, that is the Jews, all right? It's Israel. The land belongs to Israel. And when we, you know, dance around politically who the land gets, and let's, you know, cut this piece up and cut it and give them the West Bank and give them whatever, 
um, we're treading on some ground that maybe you ought to be seeking Almighty God's opinion on the matter. <laughs> right? Because he's already made a declaration as to who the land belongs to. All right. So that was my little side side thing in here. All right. So in verse 8, also I give to you and your descendants, that's the same word there, Zerah, after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is interesting the way this verse ends. I will be their God. He doesn't say, and I will be your God and their God. In other places, he says, for example, in this very same verse, I give it to you and to your descendants, including Abram, or now Abraham. Here, he says, and I will be their God. What does that say? It says it's future. This is something yet future, because Abraham's going to be dead by then. All right, so this is a promise still yet by Abraham's time to be fulfilled yet in the future. Okay, are we looking at a fulfillment of it yet? Well, if you remember from our study two times ago, we talked about the uh, dimensions of the land. It's much bigger than modern Israel. Remember, we talked about modern Israel. It's 8,000 square miles. The promise is encompassing about 80,000 square miles. We're talking 10 times the size. All right. Have we seen a fulfillment of that yet? Not to that extent. So it seems like maybe there's still a yet another future fulfillment of it on a bigger scale to match the dimensions God's given us. You can say, well, maybe God made a mistake. You know, maybe he measured wrong. I trust that when God makes a promise, he's going to go through with it, and he doesn't measure wrong. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm thinking right there. I will be their God. So it seems like whoever his descendants are, and if we're spiritual descendants of Abram, if we're just spiritual descendants of Father Abraham, our father in the faith, then it sounds like when it says, I will be their God, then we're included in that promise, that he will be our God. That he's not promising to be a God to this one man way back in ancient history. But he's offering himself up to be the God of whoever would identify themselves with this family by being a part of this family, being in Christ, and being of faith. And if you're in Christ and of faith, he is extending himself to you to be your God. And some people don't want a God. My dad doesn't want a God. He wants to live his own life. He doesn't want somebody to tell him what to do. And there are other people who say, you know what, I need, my, I need God, the one true God of the universe, extending to you an offer to be part of the family. Why would you not accept that offer? <laughs> it just it boggles my mind that you wouldn't accept that offer. He's inviting us to be participants in the family, adopted into the family, and co-heirs with Christ. Why would you pass that up? I don't know. It baffles my mind. All right, so let's wrap it up. What are the four things that we learned today? Number one, walk before me and be blameless. This was not a command just to Abram. This is a command for us as well. This is an invitation for us as well to recognize the way we live. We need to live in such a way that we're living in front of his sight, that he sees the way that we live. And we ought to be living out in such a way that we don't bring dishonor to him or to ourselves. That when it's walk before me and be blameless, that's the standard we have. The standard is not high for this hero of the faith in in the Old Testament, and it's a lesser standard for us today. No, the standard is the same for us today. We walk before God. And we are to be blameless, just as the call was to Abram. Number two, verse seven, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your Zerah after you, your descendants after you, that we get to be included in that. If you're not a Jew, that's great news. Because otherwise, what right do you have? You have no right. God is extending to you something, an invitation to you, you can freely accept it to be part of God's family, whether or not you're a Jew. Uh, Also from verse 7, the uh, second half of that, for an everlasting covenant. This is never renewed. It was never rescinded. This is still extended. It's still an offer that's still open. It's not like one of those info commercials in the middle of the night that says, call now, you know, uh, operators are standing by. This is a limit time offer. For right now, God's still extending this offer to us. It's still open and available to anybody that would come. And verse 8, also I give to you and your descendants or your Zerah after you the land as an everlasting possession. We talked about this a little bit. That land promise 
God's already God's already given his opinion on it. And whether the political leaders want to look to that or not, uh, to their peril, ignore that. All right? So today, in, in this day and age, we look in uh, what's going to happen to Israel, what's going to happen to the land. Well, God's already determined what's going to happen. But in the meantime, until God enforces that, uh, they can they can parcel it up to their disadvantage. Uh, they won't be on the side of God if they do so. <laughs> All right. All right. So let's go ahead and close in prayer and get you guys back to work. I apologize. This took, went so fast, but it took so long. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for meeting us here today. And we thank you, Lord, for the riches of your word. Lord, not talking monetary riches. We're talking spiritual riches. Lord, to find out that we're connected to a royal family. We're connected to some of the biggest names in the Bible. This invitation is extended to all of us, regardless of our race and our nation. Thank you, God. Uh, why would you do that? Your love is beyond our ability to fathom. Help us, Lord, to live gratefully and help us to be salt and light in this world, Lord. Help us to spread the good news and to be contagious with it and to hardly be able to keep our mouths shut. Help us, Lord, to invite others because your invitation extends to them as well. Go with us this week, empowering us to live for you, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Praise God.